Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll look at verses 12 through 21 this morning. And I will remind you as you're turning there that in the opening verses of chapter 3, Paul presented his pedigree. He ran through that which he at one point in life thought to be gain and said, now in comparison to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, these things are dung. They are rubbish. And he put it like this in 3.7, but what things were gained to me were being past tense. These things I have, present tense, counted loss for Christ. And the word loss means a detriment. And Paul saw his past, the things he once viewed as gains, to be detriments in, in comparison to the life that he has now through faith in Christ. And listen, our text today is kind of a, a nip it in the bud effort on Paul's part. He was highly esteemed by the Philippians. In other words, his opinion mattered. And he heads them off of the past, so to speak, lest their thoughts, like a runaway train, run away with them. And I don't know if you picked up on that, but that was three cliches in one sentence. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, he wanted to be sure that after the presentation of his pedigree, that they understood that he wasn't implying that he had achieved per perfection and had no need to pro progress further in his walk. He had already implied this in chapter 1 and now brings it back to the reader's minds within the context of those who were saying, you know what, we've already arrived. We're already perfected. If you remember in 1.6, he said, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Complete it, meaning it's not finished. He's going to keep working on him and us until when? The day of Jesus Christ until we meet the Lord in the air. And in our verses, Paul is going to include himself in the you of chapter 1, verse 6. Who God is continuing a work on and in and will continue in that work until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is going to call out a group that he dubs as enemies of the cross. And he's going to give four identifying features of those who fit into that category. And it does not appear that this is the Judaizers that he addressed in our last time in Philippians 3 and verses 1 through 11. And he mentioned that there were, uh, will mention there's a, another group who is infiltrating, possibly two, the minds of the Philippian believers and therefore the church. And the description of them he puts more in line with the kind of people he was dealing with in Corinth. Where he said, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember, right? We taught 1 Corinthians back, I think it was in 2002. You guys remember those messages, right? Now, he said in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, it is actually reported, and you can hear how he is absolutely stunned by what's happening in the church. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality, which was the practice in Corinth, that's not even named among the Gentiles. And he says, and you know what it is? Some dude is sleeping with his stepmom. A man has his father's wife, is all the Bible puts it. And he says, I think this is what stunned him, that you're puffed up. And have, rather, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. And the matter at hand in Corinth was the abuse of God's grace. And the fact is that the church there took pride in what they should have been ashamed of. And Paul said, you know what, even the heathens are shocked by this kind of behavior. And yet the church is puffed up about it. And the word puffed up means to be inflated with pride. And they were proud thinking that they were doing what was right before God by doing nothing about this man. 
And listen, the church has the responsibility to police itself, not the world. We are to examine ourselves, as 2 Corinthians 13, 5 would say, to see if we're truly of the faith. We're to judge those who are inside, not those who are outside. God will judge them. And Paul is going to expose the danger and the fallacy of this abuse of God's grace. And he will close with a reminder that we're all very much looking forward to. And that is, we have a serious physical upgrade coming when we meet the Lord in the air. Now, what we have before us is really a snapshot of the Christian life. And since we already have three cliches under our belt, let's go for the quartet or the home run and add a fourth and it will be our title, which is true to the end. Amen. True to the end is an adage we're all familiar with. And in this case and through our title, the adage is threefold. We need to be true to God's word until the end. There are things that will be true for us until the end, including things we'll have to deal with as the church. And also, there is an end. And it is coming. And we're going to be out of here one day in a moment and twinkling of an eye. Amen. Now, Peter presented this same type of scenario in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, where he said the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. And then he says, be hospitable to one another. Okay. What's that say? Maybe we ought to just skip those next two and be hospitable to one another. What? Without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone, say anyone, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Somebody say, Amen. Now listen, Peter underscores the fact that knowing that the end of hand needs, uh, identifies the fact that we need to be tactical in how we deal with things going on around us. He says, first, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Watchful means to pay attention to, be serious about having a prayer time and petitioning the Lord and, and seeing what he wants you to do. Because we have to remember, I think sometimes, half a prayer is getting an answer. It's not just submitting our checklist to God. I need this, 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 and this. It's, Lord, what would you, like Paul did on the Damascus Road, Lord, what would you have me to do? And we have to wait around for the answer. Amen? He says, be serious and watchful in your prayers and to do this simultaneously with loving one another fervently and setting aside matters between us, meaning forgiving and restoring the repentant. And he says, use the gifts that God has given us for his glory. And he closes with a reminder that eternity is going to be enjoyed by us all someday where glory and dominion are given exclusively to the one who deserved them. And that is Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Now, this will be true to the end. And we need to be true to the end, even when one of the things that will be true to the end is that Satan is going to constantly try to infiltrate the church. So let's learn what to do about that and what is true to the end, what will be true to the end. And remember that there is an end and a glorious end at that. And we'll start with verses 12 through 14 of Philippians chapter 3. And would you stand and read them with me, please? Philippians 3. 12 to 14. 
Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that's what we want to learn to do today to keep pressing forward, to keep reaching for that prize. And Lord, as the enemy uh, seeks to infiltrate, will you teach us how to identify and reject uh, that which is not of you? We thank you that there are things that are true to the end. And we pray you give us power and strength and discernment about the difficult things that will be true to the end. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul, obviously, is dealing with the errant doctrine of perfectionism, that one can achieve absolute perfection in this life. And he comes at it from two angles. The Greek word lambano is translated as attained, and it means to obtain or to receive. It implies that it was given at the moment of salvation. And then in verse 13, he says, neither does he count himself to have apprehended. And he extends that same Greek word and adds the preface of kata lambano. And that means to seize by comprehension or to obtain through perception. And keep that in mind to the point of becoming perfect. We'll talk more about that in our last section. Now, this is important because there are those today who believe that we receive sinless perfection when we were saved. And there are those today who say it can be achieved through self-control and moral behavior. And Paul says, listen, I'm not saying either of those things have happened for me. But what I am saying is, here's how I live. I forget those things that I once counted as gain. And I reach forward to what is ahead by pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah. And listen, he made this observation in Cardinal Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone, and that means there's not just one who's going to uh, finish and win the race. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. He's referencing those who played in the Greek games and got an olive leaf uh, crown uh, for their heads. But we for an imperishable crown or an e eternal one. He says, therefore, I run this, or I live my life like this, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air like a shadow boxer, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become what? Disqualified. Disqualified. Now, Paul's point is that those who receive the prize are those who press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus until that is attained. They keep pressing on. They keep working toward that goal. Now, I want to insert a couple of observations here. They're not our points, but uh, I want to insert them here. And let me just give you a heads up. They're both corny. <laughs> but that's nothing new. You've heard corny stuff here before, right? Listen, here's the first one. It is hard and dangerous to run forward when looking backward. Right? It is hard and dangerous to run forward when looking backward. And here's the other thing I think we need to remember as believers today. Listen now, there is no award stands at the 50-meter mark of the 100-meter dash. There is no award stands at the 50-meter mark of the 100-meter dash. You have to finish the race. The prize is where? At the finish line. 
And listen, those who finish will receive it. And looking back is not to be the practice of those reaching forward. And what Paul is actually doing is giving us a great tool for living that will be true to the end. And it's this. Listen this morning. Do not live under the power of anything that is covered by the blood. Do not live under the power of anything that is covered by the blood. Now listen, there's a difference in remembering the past and living under its power. And Paul recounted his conversion story three times in the book of Acts. He said twice in the New Testament that he was not worthy to be an apostle because he persecuted the church. He said this in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, or 15, 9, and in Galatians 1, 13. He recounted these things, but he saw the grace of God in and through those things. And though he remembered them, he didn't live under them. He didn't let them control him. And in Psalm 103, 10 to 13, the psalmist says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. And listen, it, it was kind of neat last night. Uh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, San Clemente, somebody I've known for many, many years, Holland Davis, and he was on staff over at Costa Mesa uh, for four years, and he said that was the limit. <laughs> because Pastor Chuck was going to give you the boot after four years and say, go out and get something done. And so he felt that, that uh, kind of unction in his spirit that it was time for him to do something. And he went to Pastor Chuck, told him what was on his heart, and Pastor Chuck said, and Holland does an awesome Pastor Chuck invitation. He said, go for it. Well, listen, when we were first starting, back in the day, back in 1999, you had to, according to the, the Calvary method at that time, you had to have every senior pastor within a 10-mile radius of where you wanted to plant a church sign off on it. And we were the closest geographic-related uh, church to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. So guess who had to sign off to the birth of CCT? <laughs> Pastor Chuck, and you know what he said? Go, Go for it. <laughs> and we did. And the Lord was with us and still is. Amen? And, and I mention that because I could just hear Pastor Chuck's voice saying, and many of you I know had years under his magnificent teaching, where he, he made this observation. I'm sorry. Some of you guys already know my phone rings and my hearing aids, and uh, somebody's calling me right now. <laughs> During church? <laughs> Go away. But I'm sure that some, some of you can hear Pastor Chuck's voice tell how specific that the Holy Spirit was in the words that he chose in Psalm 103. He didn't say, as far as the north is from the south has God removed our sins from us. Because the truth is, if you start at the North Pole and travel to the South Pole, you're going to start heading north again. If you go from north to south, you're going to start going north again. But if you go to east to west, you're always going to go east. You're never going to go west again. You're always going to be traveling east. So in other words, if the Lord said, as far as the north is from the south, God has separated us from our sins, that would be a distance of 12,500 miles. Well, that might seem like a long way to walk, but I want my sin further from me than that. I don't ever want to meet it again, amen? And that's why the Holy Spirit said from the east to the west, not from the north to the south. And Romans chapter 4, 7, and 8, 
Paul would say this to the church there in Rome. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And listen, God is in the business of turning former failures into ministries. Amen. And you know, that's why I was so excited to be uh, with the couples last night because God healed our marriage as I've talked to you about many times over the years and to tell them, you know, there's always hope. It doesn't matter how bad things may have gotten or seem or how hopeless you may view them. Listen, when you follow God's plan, it always works yeah. because He is God and He's never wrong. So if He said, husbands love your wives like Christ loves the church and a man does, a wife is going to say, man, I am submitting to that. Because there's no better way to live within a household than according to God's rules. And God takes our former failures like he did with Paul and he turns them into ministries. And Paul had a past that he remembered and Paul had a past that he regretted, but he didn't let it hold him under its power. And listen, you can't press on when your past is holding you back. And I think this is one of the hardest things for us to come to grips with as human beings because it is our fleshly nature to keep records of wrong. Right. To remember what somebody did against us. And we sometimes, I think, have a hard time thinking about God and how can he not? When we keep records of wrong, how can God not keep records of wrong? Because uh, he's God. <laughs> and he's not like us at all. He is far above us. And listen, when he covers something in the blood of his own son, it cannot hold us under its power. Unless we give it the go ahead. Unless we choose to live underneath that. And Paul says, listen, I haven't obtained perfection, nor have I achieved perfection, but neither am I held back by or live under the power of the past. He said he forgets those things which are behind, and the Greek word forgetting means to neglect, to not pay attention to. It can also mean to cast into oblivion. It wasn't something that determined his actions any longer. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes to Timothy, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, Of whom I am chief. Now, some of you, like me, have given, a Paul, uh, given Paul a pretty good run for the money <laughs> for this dubious position. Uh, there was another cliche for you, just in case you're wondering. But listen... We may have given Paul a good run for the money, but none of us have to live under the chiefdom of the past. We can all press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen this morning. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. Case in point. You don't have to. What are you clapping for down there? She's right. <laughs> Again. Listen. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. You just have to be on the path to heaven. And not towing your past behind you, which is achieved through the forgiveness of sins, whether those sins are few or many. They're all under the blood of Jesus, and we can all reach forward and forget those things which are behind. Because not doing so makes it difficult to press toward the goal. And we don't run forward by looking backward. That's dangerous. Amen? Yeah. Now look at what Paul says as he continues in 15 to 17. 
He says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind or think this way. And if any, any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. Now, we need to remember that this is the word of God. And God does not change, and therefore God's word does not change, even when culture, cultures and societies do and want the Bible to. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, it's likely that this is not the Judaizers that are in view that Paul labeled in the previous verses as unclean dogs and evil workers. It seems likely due to the content here that Paul is dealing with two other groups that were infiltrating the thinking in the Philippian church. The first group being what's in front of us, the ascetics, who were teaching that perfectionism through abstention, claiming that their abstinence from anything pleasurable, had caused them to arrive at the state of perfection. The other group will introduce and talk about about in our last section, who were exactly the opposite. Now, the thing for us to recognize is what Jesus said in John 14, 26, when he told his disciples he's leaving. It was the night, same night he was betrayed, all this. This was spoken of at the Last Supper. And he talked about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Jesus said he will teach you what? All things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And what Paul is saying, when paired with what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do, which is to teach us all things, is that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and wrong in our understanding of Scripture, the Spirit will teach us by conviction our doctrinal errors, not just our behavioral ones. Our behavioral ones are listed in multiple places in Scripture, uh, especially in Galatians 5, which we will read in a few moments. But the Holy Spirit, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is to convict the world of sin. So that's the Holy Spirit's ministry. And when we're wrong, the Holy Spirit is going to convict us, correct us, and teach us and send us in the right direction. And this pretty much answers the question about cult groups in our day who claim to be Christians yet believe things that contradict the Scripture. And if the Spirit does not convict them of their errant beliefs, it's because they don't have the Spirit and are not born again. It's just that simple. Because the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. Amen. The Holy Spirit will teach us that Jesus is not the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Holy Spirit will teach us that Jesus didn't used to be Michael the archangel. The Holy Spirit is going to teach us all of these things. And listen, we're not talking about matters of eschatological interpretation, you know, where somebody sees this particular scenario, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, that kind of thing. We're not talking about that. We're not even talking about the doctrine of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. We might say the free will predestination issue, which a lot of time has been wasted on because both groups believe the only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus. Yes. And it's the receiving of that salvation that comes into question and debate. And I say, let's not just waste time on that. Let's focus on the fact that by grace we are been saved through faith. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, John 6, 44 and 45, Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by... Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. It's exactly what John would write later that Jesus said at the Last Supper. They'll all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of false religions. 
Now, when you are taught by God, you are because Jesus is the Word. Amen. He is the Word of God. So when you're taught by God, you're going to agree with the Word of God, and you're going to reject the proposition, that is, that there is another testament of Jesus Christ. There is no other testament. And listen, the fact is, you are going to reject contradictory translations of the Bible that say heretical things like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. The Bible doesn't say the word was a God. The Bible says the word was God. And in 14 of chapter 1 of John it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word of God and if you have something that is in error the spirit is going to drive you back to Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And Paul says, you know, we're not perfect. We haven't attained perfection. Nevertheless, we serve as examples at this point in our journey home. And by we, Paul is likely referring to Epaphroditus and Timothy, though there could be others that were familiar to the Philippian church that uh, he was saying their examples like us follow them. And this is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, and what he says here, imitate me because I'm all that. <laughs> what do you say? No. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So isn't he saying imitate Christ? Yes. He's saying, you know, I'm something you can see. I'm doing my best. I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best. And this is why Paul could use himself as an example. He hadn't come up with his own way of living the Christian life. He was taught by God after the Father drew him to Jesus, and he became an imitator of Christ by the Holy Spirit, just like you and me. And he says that following those who are following Christ, who do not think they have obtained or apprehended perfection, is mature Christian living. And you know, that's why we need to be careful of people out there on social media are saying you don't need to go to church. Or you don't need a pastor telling you what the Bible says. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God has ordained those to rightly divide the word of truth. And there is also a grave warning. Let not many of you become teachers, for theirs is a stricter judgment. And God is going to judge those who mishandle the word of God. And, uh, you know, I, I signed up for the well done, good and faithful servant camp. I don't want that other camp. Amen. So we're going to teach this book as written. And listen. To say that you must live a monastic type of lifestyle of self-deprivation and isolation is not found on the pages of Scripture. Right. Yeah. So it's an error. Yeah. And let me take this a step further because this bugs me. Anybody got any stuff that bugs them? Yeah, yeah my list is lengthy. But uh, one of the things that bugs me is this idea that pastors have to remain or priests need to remain celibate. As a matter of fact, you know, I, and there's guys who disagree with me and I with them. But 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives the qualifications for one who desires the office of the bishop. And the first thing it says is he must be the husband of one wife. Now, some like to say, well, he can't be divorced. Others like to say because some had multiple wives, you can only have one wife. That's not what it says. It says you've got to be married. Why? Because that protects him. Because he's got a mate to travel through. And it keeps him from having to sit down with women in the church who he ought not to be talking to behind closed doors in the first place and allow a woman to give that counsel. Uh, I, think, I think what Scripture says is the pastor needs to be married, not that the priest needs to be celibate. So they're in error. 
And let me add this, and this is the flesh. That's a stupid, really bad error at that. <laughs> now, listen this morning. To say that anything done in the flesh is allowable since the flesh isn't what, what is saved is equally unbiblical and therefore it is error too. And we'll talk about that in our last section. Let me throw this out just because it needs to be said because this is rampant in the church also. To say that the Jews today are not the Jews of the Bible and that modern Israel is not biblical Israel is a contradiction of too many verses to name this morning. We wouldn't even have time to read them all that that contradicts or ignores. And listen, it is therefore error. It is not an alternative interpretation. It's just error. And Paul said, listen, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 4. And again, he's talking about meat offered to idols. And, you know, one of the practices in Corinth and other cities of the day is that the meat market was at pagan temples. And they would offer the sacrifice to an idol and they would cook the meat then and sell it. Some Christians had a problem with that. Paul's saying, you know, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And he said this, listen, food's for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality. He's saying this is what's really important. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And John would say this in 1 John 3, 7 and 8. John the Beloved wrote, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. He who, I'm not sure what John's trying to say here, but he says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, if he destroyed them, should we live in them? No, no of course not. And we talked about this last week. The yoke of the Lord is easy. His burden is light. And John made the observation that his commandments are not burdensome, but they are a blessing. And listen, in, in contrast to the ascetics, life is meant to be enjoyed. Yes. In contrast to the libertines, sin is to be avoided. And the Bible is the inspired and infallible word of God, and it cannot be added to or taken away from without grave consequence. And this will be true to the end. And any teaching that says otherwise is error. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, Let's look at 18 to 21, and we'll wrap up our time with one of our favorite verses in the whole Bible. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame. And here's why. Who set their mind on earthly things. And then in contrast, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait. Boy, we ought to underline eagerly. For the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed. Here's the destination of predestination, by the way, from Romans 8. That we may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Now, listen. This group identified as enemies of the cross that Paul had warned of often. He mentioned their walk, and he uses the Greek word peripateo. And it's the same word he would use to describe the Christian walk. And the reason that's important is because Paul is telling us there were a group of errant infiltrators trying to make their way into the church and change the walk of the body of Christ. Now, he gives a very chilling indictment that their end is destruction, which is hell, reminding us 
The church attendance and even participation doesn't save you. You can go to church your whole life and not be saved. You can stand behind a pulpit and preach and not be saved. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. Amen? And he says the reason that this indictment can be made is because of their behavior. Their God is their belly. And this eliminates the possibility of this group being the Judaizers because the Judaizers were not ruled by fleshly appetites. They were in the opposite, more strict direction of adherence to the law. So it's not talking about the Judaizers. This has to be another group. And to this same end, 1 John 2, 15 and 17, the beloved would write, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone, say anyone, anyone. say anyone, loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 3.10 of John's first letter says, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Listen, that's the only two categories of people on the earth. If you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. That's why Jesus said, if you're not for me, you are against me, which is the very meaning of Antichrist, against Christ. And he says, whoever does not, what's the next word? Practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, one of the things for us to note about John's writing is that the epistles of John were the furthest calendar distance away from the earthly ministry of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. And they are the last uh, chronologically of the New Testament writings, yet they are completely consistent with what was written decades earlier, inspired by the Spirit to be given to the church. They were written after the book of Revelation. Uh, John returned to Ephesus after he was released from the Isle of Patmos. He wrote the book of Revelation, and then after that he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I mean, this is just logical, uh, besides it's historically supported. I mean, think about it. If God gives you a revelation like the book of Revelation, what are you going to write down first? <laughs> you're going to write down that vision, right? And then you're going to give your comments about that vision afterwards, which are found in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's why they are so strongly worded, because John, after having the visions that he saw in the book of Revelation and wrote down for us to read and heed, he saw who went to heaven, he saw who went to hell, and he heard why. Paul wrote the same kind of thing further upstream in church history in his letter to the church at Rome, where he put it like this. For those, Romans 8, 5 to 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now the setting of the mind indicates a constancy. For to be carnally minded is what? But to be spiritually minded is what? Life and peace. Why? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know what that means? They're not of the faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. If they cannot please God, they have no faith. Saving faith, obviously. Now, the point being that these things will be true to the end, no matter how far downstream in church history one may live, including those who are alive at the time where the trumpet sound is going to blast and the voice of God is going to say, Come up here! 
like Revelation 4.1 records. And Paul says of this group who are likely the Gnostics that their glory, meaning boasting, and it's translated as boasting elsewhere, is actually their shame. And they believed that their salvation was centered in their gnosis, their knowledge of God. <clears throat> meaning that they were free to live however they wished and in whatever lifestyle because nothing they did would be considered sin because Christ didn't die for the flesh, he died for the spirit. Now this points back to the apprehended in verse 13, that Catalambano. This group said they achieved perfection through knowledge. And personal behavior was irrelevant, since the spirit is what saved and not the flesh. Now, Paul says these individuals pretended to be right with God while their actions and behaviors were completely contradictory of one who professes godliness. He calls their actions shameful. And listen, there's a broad movement in the church today under many banners that basically says a cognitive awareness of Jesus as Savior is the extent of the Christian experience. Sin has become irrelevant because they are saved by grace and their salvation is secured by their knowledge, gnosis of Christ. Modern day Gnosticism is rampant in the church today. And therefore Paul would say this to the church in Romans 6, 1-4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer is pretty succinct. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk out in newness of life. And what Paul is saying in simplistic form is when you get saved, you're going to be different afterwards. You're going to live a whole different kind of life. And he says of the Gnostics, their minds are actually set on earthly things, which means every aspect of their life was earth-centered. Their sensual appetites, shameful deeds, and final destiny were all determined and identified by the fact that everything about them in their lives was earthly or carnal. And then he draws a contrast between the earthly-minded's eternal destiny and ours by stating that for the Bible-believing, God-fearing, born-again Christian, our destiny is in heaven and we're already citizens of there. Amen. Now, Amen. let's make our last point about what is true to the end and we'll close with one of our favorite verses in the whole Bible. Listen, here's what I think we need to offer as balance to what we've been talking about and hopefully a simplistic package for our understanding. Listen, personal behavior can't save you, but it can indicate where you're headed. Personal behavior can't save you, but it can indicate where you're headed. In other words, when you're saved, God changes your behavior. And it lines up with the behaviors that are described in the Bible and the thinking as well. And where we're wrong, the Holy Spirit will convict and then correct us. And remember, Paul dismantled the doctrine of perfectionism using himself as the example and proof that all believers should still be growing. They should all be pressing forward. They should all be striving toward that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Jesus would package the same type of thing as he concluded the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 and 7, 21 to 23, where he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just simply the cognitive awareness, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He says, many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I, Jesus speaking, will declare to them, I never knew you. What was the proof? They practiced lawlessness. 
He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, Galatians 5, 19 to 21 that we alluded to earlier says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice, practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we don't want to fall into errant thinking ourselves because it's the practice of sinful things, not the slip up or the stumble that's in view. And the word practice means to perform repeatedly. It means to be busy or occupied with. It means to commit habitually, implied that there is no remorse or conviction in doing these things that are forbidden or prohibited by Scripture. And listen, the reason we need to make this point is because Christians sin. Yes. I don't know, maybe this hearing aids off, but I didn't hear anything from the sinners over here. Christian sin. Yes, we all sin. We stumble. James says we all stumble in many things. But listen, sinning and stumbling on your way to heaven doesn't change your eternal destiny. It's the unrepentant, defend my right to live as I please, yet claim to know Christ, habitual pursuit of earthly things that Paul is talking about here. Now listen, this kind of thinking and living only leads to destruction. And as citizens of heaven, however, we have the transformation of these lowly bodies into Christ-like immortal and incorruptible bodies awaiting us as recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52. Now, this new and incorruptible body is looking pretty good. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to it, aren't you? Yes. Listen, we were talking the other day, Terry and I, and uh, this has been a bit of a decade uh, for me personally and especially for somebody who's been healthy their whole life and I've had allergies my whole life and asthma my whole life but I've been healthy I mean you might think you just said you weren't well yes I was but <laughs> but you know what we were just saying uh, I was telling her the other day you know I'm, I'm having surgery this hip thing drives me nuts I'm having a great week I'm doing really well. Last week, I pinched a nerve, and then I had a good time before that. The week before that, I pinched a nerve. It's just up and down, up and down. Drives me nuts. And you know what it makes me think? Man, that new body sounded better and better every day. And you know, it, it, in these past 10 years, I had my right hip replaced in 2012. My left hip will be replaced in two, uh, 2022. And I am going to have my eighth surgery in 10 years, four of them major. And, and listen, during that time, I had a mystery infection that put me in the hospital for a week in November of 2019. And I had one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. I had the infectious disease doctor and the head of ICU in my room. And I heard the doctor say, this is the sickest guy in the hospital. We, we, don't, we don't know what, what's going on with this guy in the ICU. You know, and I'm sitting up talking to everybody. And, you know, I didn't know I got this big old fungal ball the size of a softball in my right lung. I didn't know what was going on with me. They didn't know what was going on with me. And then after a week, they said, we don't know what's going on with you. Get out of our hospital. Go home. <laughs> and listen, in January 20 of 21, on New Year's Day, I had COVID. And the next month, you know what happened because of COVID? My heart went into atrial fibrillation. I never told you guys about this because I didn't want you to worry because my cardiologist wasn't worried, so I wasn't going to worry, except I did. <laughs> but it put me in AFib for three months. Wow. And then finally, they shocked my heart back into rhythm. And uh, 
you know, on top of that, the normal colds, flus, aches, and pains of growing older has been this past decade. And as I said, this new Christ-like body sounding better and better every day, and I'm sure you all would agree. Amen. But listen, in Isaiah 40, 31, and there's a point to me all telling you that, and it's not to get awes. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now listen, here's why I shared that bunch of nonsense with you. And that is because I and all of you are looking forward to a new glorified Christ-like body. Amen? We are looking forward to that. But hang on, buckle up. Here it comes. That is a far distant second to the fact that we're going to be with Jesus. That's what's important, is we're going to be with Jesus someday. And John the Beloved said in 21, 1 to 5 of Revelation, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth that's going to require a new body for you and I. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, which he describes like a bride on her wedding day, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will, this had to be a James Earl Jones kind of voice talking here, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And then he said, and I'm paraphrasing, John, write this stuff down because it's true. Yes. It is going to happen. This is where we're going, and this is the city we are already citizens of. So let's not be ignorant of the fact that the devil wants to infiltrate the church with unbiblical restrictions and rituals or unbridled lusts and earthly pursuits. And this is going to be true to the end. And therefore, let's remember the words of John the Beloved. And this is the last I'm going to share with you today, maybe. He said, John said, after having seen who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, he says this in 1 John 1, 5 to 10. This is the message we heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him, in him is no darkness at all. Remember, light and darkness are figurative for truth and lies, good and evil. Jesus is the truth. Amen? Amen. And he says, listen, if we say, he said, this is what Jesus taught. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, live our lives in uh, perpetual practices of sin, we're lying. And we're not practicing the truth. In contrast, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Having all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, he says again, in contrast, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, which proves his word is not in us. Who's his word again? Jesus. Jesus. You don't have Jesus. If you say 
that he's God's a liar and you haven't sinned according to God's definitions, you're the one who's actually a liar and his word is not in you. Now listen, this is one of the most important yet abused passages in church history and it's one I think that needs to be uh, clarified in our day. He says, he gives a condition, if we confess our sins, the word confess means to see as or speak of as the same. In other words, John said, Jesus taught that we have to agree with his definitions of sin and not create our own. And we live in a time where people want to create their own definitions of sin and eliminate things that are culturally unacceptable and all that. But listen, if God said it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not, believing it is irrelevant. If God said it, that settles it. If he said sexual activity is exclusive to married male and female couples, that is biologically male and female couples, then that's how it is. You may not like it. Tough. God has no suggestion box. He is not, has zero interest in your opinion or mine about where morality. He determined it and defined it and said, follow it. And that's the end of that. And listen, all the things that the Bible says, we need to follow after. Because if we agree with God's definitions of sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say his definitions are wrong, we're calling God a liar. And that is bad. And the truth or his word is not in us. Now, my notes abruptly ended here. And I realized the old saying, and this is good counsel for every public speaker. When your mind goes blank, remember to turn off the sound. <laughs> so we're done. Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs>